Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. This episode benefits from the exciting public programming we do at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies. On April 23rd of 2021, we held a day-long conference considering Joshua B. Freeman's landmark book, Working Class New York, Life and Labor Since World War II. One of the panels featured a roundtable concerning 21st century prospects for social democracy in the United States. Moderated by School of Labor and Urban Studies faculty member Joel Suarez, the discussion shaped into something of a debate between Deepak Bhargava and Torre Reid. It concerned the salience of race versus class in efforts to advance a social democratic politics. Despite their significant differences, they concurred that this question of race and class identity is, as Deepak put it, the axis on which the social democratic project will turn. I'm pleased that Joel Suarez joins me now to introduce this vital discussion. Welcome, Joel. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to sort of introduce this discussion. I, I think it was interesting for a lot of reasons, both historical and contemporary, and both sort of in terms of political analysis and political strategy. So I think what really emerges is sort of the classic class first or race first debate, but this was obviously way more civil and I think infinitely more informed, fruitful than most of these debates that you typically hear. I think the kind of discourse around the, the sort of class or race debate that, that really came into the political scene really emerged out of the 2016 Democratic primary, where you saw the ascent of, of Bernie Sanders and the sort of social movement around him against sort of Hillary Clinton and, and her political coalition. And that debate, it got pretty nasty and, and really ahistorical and, and conceptually confused at times. And I think what this panel really showed was really that this it wasn't a matter of diametrically opposed positions, but 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 rather like a points of emphasis, both in, in political analysis and how to approach this as a strategy. So, you know, you'll hear a lot more of this at, at, you know, as you listen to the panel, but I think what you could possibly say, you know, as a sort of straw man is on the one side, you have kind of the the, the class uh, first critique is, is that, you know, reducing politics to identity really reduces it just to an individual prejudice and experience and and that really limits the capacity to build an emancipatory movement and on the other side there's this critique that by focusing solely on class or the working class you're erasing the most sort of distinct and and you know profound forms of oppression in society mainly sort of racial oppression particularly against african-americans 
or people of the Black diaspora more broadly. But I think what they showed is is really kind of this debate kind of highlighted the famous Stuart Hall quote that, that race is the modality in which class is lived, which posits really that, that capital creates class, but class itself is structured by race. So what you'll hear is, is Tory stressing that strategically we need to build around a, a working class movement that can be universalist and really forge the solidarity needed to overcome racial oppression and also class oppression, which I thought was really compelling and useful. And Deepak, I think, also really shrewdly stressed that, you know, by, you know, centering the most <laughs> oppressed groups, you're, you are enabling a, a more universal sort of emancip emancipatory politics. So I think this was just a really wonderful exchange and something that I really learned a lot from. Yeah, I found it so engaging. I think our listeners will too. So let's turn to it now. Hi, everyone. Welcome, everyone. I'm extremely excited to moderate our panel today on the past, present, and future of social democracy in New York and the United States. Uh, my name is Joel Suarez. I'm an assistant professor of labor studies here at SLU. First up is Deepak Bhargava. Uh, he's a distinguished lecturer at the School of Labor and Urban Studies. He's a policy expert on issues of poverty, economic justice, racial equity, and immigration, and has been an organizer for 30 years around issues of immigration and social democracy. Along with Ruth Milkman and Penny Lewis, he has co-edited a brand new, fascinating book titled Immigration Matters, Movements, Visions, and Strategies for a Progressive Future, published by the New Press. We have Torrey Reed, who's a professor of history at Illinois State University, where he teaches courses on Black social, political, and intellectual history. He has published widely on race and class ideologies, African-American politics, and public policy. And his first book was titled Not Alms, But Opportunity, The Urban League and the Politics of Racial Uplift. And he also has a more recently book titled Towards Freedom, The Case Against Race Reductionism, published by Verso Press just this last year. The questions are, they seem simple, but they're, they're big. Um, and that is, is, is social democracy still a viable program? Are progressives too focused on restoring the programs and politics of the New Deal? And can the shattered social democratic coalition be reconstituted? So those are big questions, but I just want you to think about what, what exactly social democracy means today, what it possibly meant in the middle of the 20th century, and maybe think about how its fortunes changed and faded in the late 20th century and where it stands today as an idea in relation to, to other social movements. Tori, let's, let's hear from you. Oh, thanks for having me. Is, is social democracy viable? Well, if social democracy is about improving the material lives of working people, God, I hope so. Because if it, if it isn't viable in the United States, then we're all screwed. That doesn't mean that the path forward is easy. And I think the path forward is, is obviously quite difficult. With regard to one of the things potentially cluttering the, the path forward being uh, the suggestion that progressives might be too invested in defending the legacy of the, the New Deal or restoring, I guess, the New Deal. I wasn't really aware that progressives were interested in restoring the New Deal per se. So I'll just say this, I'm keenly aware of efforts to try to take the New Deal as, and these are the rights efforts, to treat the New Deal as a proxy for all things bad about state action. And in fact, I'm aware of both the right and centrist Democrats investment in taking the New Deal, again, is evidence of the inherent inability of a social democratic state to deliver for Americans across racial lines, right? Because the New Deal is allegedly inherently racist. And, you know, so those people who I know who are invested in 
exploring the complexity of the New Deal these days aren't so much interested in making a case for returning to the New Deal as it was, who in their right mind would want to do that? Considering that the New Deal comes about at a time period in which scientific racism in an unambiguous way, unlike ancestry DNA, which is a more ambiguous version of scientific racism, but nevertheless unabashed scientific racism, the kind the Nazis embraced firmly, was part of American culture and society. You know, Blacks obviously did not share equally in the rewards of the state, uh, the rewards of capitalism or the state, uh, and certainly the New Deal state, right, which we all know and have long known. So I don't think that there are a lot of people who are interested in restoring the New Deal exactly as it was, but people do certainly point to the New Deal as the best that America has had to offer working people and the starting point for a better society and a better version of American democracy, something on the spectrum of social democracy, but that wasn't quite there, I, I think. And what, what then references to the New Deal and efforts, again, to highlight what was good about it in recent years come down to, I would submit, would be um, an effort to push back against the rights assault on the ability of the state to deliver. I mean, for almost my entire life at this point, at least for four-fifths of it, I've lived under some regime or another that insisted that government is not the problem, it's the solution. <laughs> or sorry, government is not the solution, it's the problem. I, I look at it the other way, hence that slip. But nevertheless, uh, and in that context, it's crucially important to point to the things that the state can do to make people's lives better and the New Deal is illustrative of the things that the state can do. And before I cede the mic, I'll, I'll, I'll add one other element. While, you know, I mean, the tendency, again, the commonplace tendency is to insist at this point that the New Deal was inherently racist. I often enough these days have, have been besieged by assertions that, that I'm a revisionist for insisting that Blacks actually did benefit from the New Deal, even as they didn't benefit equally which isn't news. I mean, this is something I learned in 1988 in my first year in college when I'd read Harvard Sitkoff's A New Deal for Blacks, which was 10 years old at that point. So, I, you know, it's long known that the New Deal did not distribute its rewards equally across racial lines. So there's very clearly a kind of sensibility in this moment that comes down to a resistance to uh, feeling the burn, as it were, it comes down to pushback that's oddly bipartisan against the kind of zeal or interest in social democratic politics that was energized by the Sanders campaign, right, by way of stripped down reductionist characterizations of American history that actually, interestingly enough, ignore historiography. Now, I'll stop because there's a lot more I'd like to say, but we can get back to that later or so. Thank Done. you. That gives us a lot to discuss and debate. But um, uh, Deepak, if you could chime in on that, that question. So I think my answer to the question is that social democracy is the right aspiration, but that it's a project, at least right now, of creation, not of recovery. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I approached, I looked at um, Working Class New York again last night and kind of looked at it through the eyes of an organizer, which is what I am. And I was very moved by the extent to which I think we can learn from the solidaristic ethos a kind of emphasis on mass participation in political and civic life, the emphasis on small d democratic organizations, unions, civil society groups, community organizations, 
to contest for power. That was incredibly inspiring and moving. And I think that is our heritage. And I was also struck in, in the way that Josh tells a little bit of his own story in the book. My father was for many years, a taxi driver in New York City. And I went to college out of a fund that Taxi Workers Union, which was at that point affiliated with SEIU, had established for the kids of taxi drivers. And it's just kind of part of that fabric of, of rich associational life that is especially our heritage in New York. So I'm also grateful to Josh in that personal way for like a window into how to tie our individual stories into this collective project of social democracy. I do think we're actually on the cusp. I don't mean to be overly optimistic, but I, I actually think we could be on the cusp of a, of a kind of a new foundation in the next decade. And that's not probably going to advance through nostalgia for the past program or the past coalition that brought social democracy about. We'll need new programs, new coalitions. There's no ideal past to return to. I really agree with um, Toure about that. The program today needs to engage much more seriously at the intersection of race, gender, and class together. You know, we've been contending with uh, neoliberal and white backlash to the gains of the freedom movements of the 1960s and 70s ever since that time. Almost since the gains were won of inclusion, they have been deeply contested. So I think it's pretty clear that a, a more modern program for social democracy will include traditional preoccupations, but also much more centrally concerns about gender and race and the environment. So I think you can also begin to see the new version or a new coalition to power that kind of change in the most progressive elements of the labor movement inside unions and in the broader kind of alt-labor space, in racial justice movements and immigrant movements, its progress is being manifested in the more progressive elements of Biden's program on the green economy and the care economy. So I'm actually fairly optimistic, but not because I think we ought to be looking backwards, except to some of the principles of organizing solidarity and collective power that I think are at the heart of working class New York, Josh's book, but, but more because I think something new is stirring that's very promising. How does contemporary racial ide uh, ideology shape social democratic politics today? And how might social democratic, uh, social democracy transform racial ideology in a post-neoliberal future? I actually think there's a very interesting contrast between the program of the Clintonites with Rubin at the helm and the program of Biden, who of course was a participant and agreed with much of the Clinton agenda, and his principal economic advisor, Brian Deese, who also comes out of Wall Street, in this yeah. case, BlackRock, rather than Goldman Sachs. And if you think about two massive departures, one of which is the main anti-poverty strategy of the Clinton years was the earned income tax credit, which was kind of the salve they gave for having taken away brutally, in my opinion, the, the cash entitlement to poor women, largely significantly poor women of color in the 90s welfare from the salve, the compensation was the earned income tax credit which was preconditioned on having a job, right? So it arguably equally functions as a subsidy to low-wage employers who don't pay enough for people to live, but they get a, a, a kind of wage subsidy through the ATC. Fast forward to today, and you get the refundable child tax credit, which goes to the very poorest people in the country without any work, work requirement at all, and is a massive 
actual serious anti-poverty program. That's a massive transition. And then secondly, the Deese-Biden program today is a program of public investment, government investment, the green economy, the care economy. It's It basically says government investment is not inherently worse. It might even be better than, than private investment. And that's a radical departure from the, the Clinton-Rubin program. Now, that doesn't illustrate to me that that there's some beneficence or some benevolence or something has you know changed in the governing class. It illustrates to me that there's actually something changing in the country and there's something in the way of social movements, the fight for 15, the movement for black lives, et cetera, that has broken the hold, the stranglehold of that ideology, which did so much damage for so long to so many people. And that's partly what I find so encouraging. It's remarkable the extent to which Biden is able to push certain, you know, fiscal policies through the recovery acts. But it's curious when I think about the period, the the discourse was very much welfare queens. We need to reform welfare and welfare as we know it. And the singular figure here was like the 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 single black mother. And there was just a very entrenched racial politics that sort of propelled that that policy reform, which seems to not really be the case in the current moment. So maybe, Tori, you could sort of speak on what has happened or or how do you see that evolution happening over time right now? Well, uh, it's complicated, uh, as my students like to say, but I think it actually is complicated. So I'm not just being glib. On the one hand, there's a lot to be optimistic about, I think, on the racial front, right? I mean, it is great, as, as you point to, Joel, that at this moment, I don't have to hear about welfare queens. And I spent the entire 1990s pissed off at the Clinton administration, right? I mean, I've, as I've said many times, I never voted for Bill Clinton. I sat out in 92 and I set out for 90, in 96 and I cast my protest vote in 2000 because I couldn't co-sign, you know, the the war on, the racialized war on poor people that Bill Clinton certainly was into, right? That we got by way of the Omnibus Crime Act and Hope Six and welfare reform, et cetera, et cetera. And NAFTA didn't do black people any good, right? Right, NAFTA hurt black workers, you know, at a higher rate than, than, than white workers. So again, I mean, it's, it's great that we've had this realization that maybe super predators was a bad thing. And maybe we've even come to realize that super predators were racist. But there's an interesting thing about this, right? I mean, I'm really uncomfortable about the moral awakening uh, or reckoning framework, because I think one of the things that people who are swept up in the moral reckoning framework seem not to appreciate the fact is that crack babies, super predators, welfare queens, but we'll pick mainly on crack babies and, and, and super predators, were also part of a moral panic, right? I mean, when Hillary Clinton made the, super, the racist super predator case, in one, one interview, at least one, she had said something to the effect that, you know, we can debate where these people come from, right? I mean, where they come from, you know, that's up for grabs. The problem is they're here now, and we need tough on crime legislation to deal with them. And so, so again, I mean, the first part, the first thing that's worth keeping sight of is while it's good that we've moved beyond that racialist framework that was the basis for all of this draconian, or at least what contributed to a draconian set of policies that impacted Blacks disproportionately, Black and Brown people disproportionately, but not exclusively, we haven't actually jettisoned the racialist framework as it pertains to understanding inequality, right? Or we haven't fully complicated it, I guess, maybe is a, is a better way to put it, because now we are in the throes of another moral panic, which has some 
potentially better implications, right? I mean, I'm, I'm certainly happy to see, again, Officer uh, Derek Chauvin be convicted, right, for killing George Floyd. And I was 21 at the, at the time of the Rodney King verdict and um, really pissed off about that. Like I said, I spent the 90s pissed. But, but anyway, this current moral reckoning framework, again, remains wed to a kind of racialist presumptions about the world that displace the role of class in determining racial outcomes, right? Or class's influence in shaping what we see as racial inequalities. So for example, we recall last summer that there was a push to discuss COVID-19 infections in race-specific terms. And it was in fact a moral imperative that we discuss COVID-19 as the virus, as essentially the black plague, right? The virus that was affecting blacks so disproportionately that seemed that race had to have been a factor. And of course, as, as the evidence has come in, as I think was predictable at the time, it was clear that race wasn't really the star of the show. You know, it, it couldn't be the star of the show, right? Because race isn't the biological category, but instead, you know, these social issues, right? These social factors, like whether or not one was a, a central worker, whether or not one lived in neighborhoods with high population density or was likely to rely on public transportation, et cetera, et cetera. The same would be at play to a degree with you know, police killings and mass incarceration and all these things too, right? I mean, if you do look at the numbers on police killings, people who are murdered at the hands of police officers, I mean, you'll see that whites are the majority and blacks are overrepresented, right? But just as in the 90s, blacks overrepresentation among the inmate population, let's say, or people or perpetrators of violent or violent crimes or property theft was equated with the totality, right? The disproportionality of Blacks overrepresentation translated into a presumption that what was going on was that there was something in something embedded in Black people or something about Black people that made them criminals because they were overrepresented. So that became the totality, hence super predators. Blacks overrepresentation among the inmate population, Blacks overrepresentation among people who were murdered by police officers, Blacks overrepresentation among victims of COVID-19, or at least actually that's not even, that last one's not even really true. That becomes evidence once again, that it's all about race, but class isn't really a factor. And, and hopefully you see that connection because I'm making this up in real time. So while there's cause for optimism here, right? As I said, I'm glad that Officer Sovan was, was convicted, very glad about that. And it stands in sharp contrast to, you know, what I witnessed as a young man a long, long time ago. I'm pretty uh, apprehensive about the path forward as it pertains to this, this racial reckoning framework, because since class isn't as much part of that narrative, but race is, we get this kind of racial pluralist construct that presumes, and you can see this borne out in the discourse on reparations and the like, that insists that the challenges of Blacks up and down the class ladder are the same. And what will benefit then, let's say the Robert Smiths or Robert Johnsons in the world will trickle down to Black folk, to, to poor and working class Black folk, that we have to, let's say, grow the ranks of Black entrepreneurs to close the racial wealth gap. And it makes sense that people would say that because 80% of the racial wealth gap is between the top 10% of white wage earners 
and the top 10% of black wage earners. So if you want to close the racial wealth gap, there's an easier way to do it. Grow the ranks of black millionaires and billionaires. That doesn't mean that that's going to trickle down, right? And in fact, one of the nice things about the Sanders campaign, I think this is actually true of, of Trumpism, but, but in a not nice way, obviously, is that both of them were expressions, I think in part, more, less, um, more transparently in Sanders' case than with Trump's. But nonetheless, I think that, that both Sanders and Trump reveal massive dissatisfaction with neoliberalism, right? I mean, and of course, trickle down, there it is, I said it. So we get this blow, this pushback against neoliberalism and even trickle down. And yet in the racial justice framework that we're operating with at this moment, people seem to imagine, many of us seem to imagine that while trickle down didn't work at the macroeconomic level, because black people supposedly share a, a singular interest that it'll actually work with black people. So you, you grow the ranks of black entrepreneurs again with the expectation that the wealth will trickle, that black bosses are better bosses to black people. And just as apparently white bosses are supposed, the implication would be white bosses would be better bosses to white people. I've been to West Virginia. That's clearly not true. So there's some good things in this moment, but there's also, I think, some, some things that, marry, that ma uh, merit sober reflection and the kind of moralism, I don't really think is the left, is, is, is the path forward for social democracy, at least not this expression of moralism. I mean, I think to your point of, of the future of social democracy, in some ways, the, the, the future depends on the ability to find a new synthesis around questions of class, race, and gender that works at the level of program, that works at the level of coalition, and that actually works in people's lived experience. So some of the problem, historically, has been a class reductionist approach, which has viewed issues around policing or incarceration or immigration as kind of tangential concerns, not working class concerns, but as sort of social issues that are off to the side. What I think is encouraging about the last decade or so of struggle is that workers' movements and racial justice movements have been closely intertwined and drawn on each other. So I don't think you can understand the fight for 15 and the impact that's had on workers' wages, except by reference to the fact that it has drafted to a substantial degree on energy and identity in the Black freedom struggle. I don't think you can understand the explosion of immigrant worker centers or the organization on a mass scale of janitors in the country, except with reference to the relationship of immigrant identity and worker identity. So it's like an ongoing problem. It is a, it is a tension, it is maybe the tension, but I wanna, I guess, invite us to the possibility of a new synthesis rather than falling back into some of the patterns that have I feel like plagued us and 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 riven our program and riven our um, coalition in ways that have harmed progress. So I'm actually quite optimistic that I think, at least in the activism that I see in the movement for Black Lives, the immigrant rights movement, the climate, the youth climate movement, more effort to center a critique of capitalism than would one would have ten or twenty years ago. And at least in some parts of the labor movement, not all, by a long shot, some effort to really reckon with the history of exclusion in the country and in the movement that might point a path forward. So it feels like very tentative, and I'm not usually the resident optimist on any panel. So you know, I'm doing my doing my bit here to to liven things up. But but I do think that synthesis is not just a pipe dream. I think it is possible 
to achieve. I, uh, I, I think that it's very clear to me that coalitions are necessary, right? And coalitions certainly have to be transracial, right? They have to be interracial, they have, have to cross gender lines, et cetera, right? Because everybody's affected, everyone who works for a living is affected by capitalism. At least everyone who works for a living in the United States or any other capitalist system is, is affected by capitalism and the flow of capital and all, all matters on that spectrum. But I, I would complicate the narrative just a little bit or, or seek complication on a narrative about the history of, of class reductionism in the understandings of racial inequality. And I'll, I'll do this maybe by way of a two front on two point on the fly uh, way. You know, it, it wasn't, it was the case not that long ago in the grand scheme of things where black Americans certainly understood, tended to understand racial inequality and economic being and economic inequality being two versions, two elements of the same thing, right? And it's logical. It's not as if uh, I will pair, I will channel the spirit of Barbara Jean Fields, but I won't quote her. It's, it's white people, white people enslaved black people just because they didn't like black people. They sure inconvenienced themselves to achieve that end and also just happened to make a lot of money, at least those who owned slaves in the process, right? It was quite a feat to get from Western Europe around Cape Verde and then to cross the Atlantic just because you don't want to be mean to, to black people, right? So obviously going back to 1619, right? Or the early 1500s, even better, that there was an economic imperative behind the exploitation of blacks. And that certainly would continue to be the case once we have the United States proper, there's an economic imperative that's informing the exploitation of sharecroppers, right? I mean, that's, that's, it's sharecropping not white people's permanent sadistic camp for blacks, right? And sharecroppers were often enough white too. And they also got the fuzzy end of the lollipop, even if they didn't get the fuzziest end of the fuzzy end of the lollipop. And the day in this case would be the white sharecroppers. And of course, black workers and in industry could look at pay scales, pay structures, posted pay structures in the era before an FEPC or affirmative action and see that whites were paid a higher rate than blacks for the same work, let's say, when that was an option. And even among whites, depending on what type of white person they were, and they weren't necessarily really white, depending on when you're talking about in early 20th century, you could see the way that ethnicity, or what we would think of as ethnicity, but employers in the first quarter or third of the 20th century would have un understood to be race, influenced you know, one's economic prospects of the job, and ditto in housing markets, right? So. As a result, I mean, it's not surprising that let's say black populists understood that sharecropping was not just about racial domination, but was about class exploitation. It's also not surprising that blacks during black leftists uh, during the great migration, many of them anyway, at least those classified as leftists would understand, would have understood labor force exploitation or, or, race, or uh, racially tiered housing and labor markets as an expression of capitalist exploitation, but more to the point that even mainstream black liberals by the New Deal and World War II, all the way up to black power, and you know, it kind of drops off around black power, understood that racism was in some part an expression of economic exploitation. It's kind of the language of economic exploitation. And white people got screwed by racially tiered housing markets and of course, labor markets. And that was the basis for 
a certain degree of solidarity among blacks and whites in the labor movement. I think this this is the axis on which the project of social democracy will turn. So it's kind of valuable to struggle a little bit in it and to to, to engage in it. So I think my own view is that downplaying the distinctive experiences of particular parts of the working class coalition we want will not lead to class unity. That in fact, it lays the predicate for the kind of demonization of racial minority groups of immigrants that Trump practice. In other words, Obama's failure to address or acknowledge certain historic problems, and in fact, to play in, as Toure said, to certain tropes, failure to address immigration, his deportations, all of that actually created a condition for Trumpism. So I think you can have a politics, and I think this is kind of the, the argument that, that um, Heather McGee is making in her new book, The Some of Us, which is both universalistic and targeted. That is to say that that offers a broad platform of universal benefit on healthcare for Medicare for all and guaranteed income and et cetera, et cetera, in the context of a, a labor agenda. And that is very forthright about saying, we have to end mass incarceration, which disproportionately harms communities, address racist policing and et cetera, et cetera. That the kind of targeted universalist approach, which I see emergent, it's actually happening in much politics among young people and in progressive sections of the labor movement and in racial justice struggles, that I think is the future. That is what I mean is the, is what is not class reductionism that embraces the difference as part of embracing the entire working class politics. The other thing I just want to say briefly is I think one of the other edges for social democratic politics in this period is going to be internationalism. You know, the extent to which if, because of climate change, for example, we have millions of people seeking refuge in the United States because their home countries have been made unlivable, unarable because of extreme temperatures and weather events, unless there is a kind of proactive part of social democratic politics that is welcoming to immigrants, it will be a chronic vulnerability to break apart that coalition and it will succeed. So it's both on pragmatic grounds and also on moral grounds that I'm arguing for significant, not exclusive, but significant attention to these kinds of, of challenging issues. Hey, I, I agree with Deepak that one has to have programs that are clearly universal, that address the problems of economic inequality that impact working people. And certainly that racism, sexism, xenophobia are all real, um, et cetera. And, and of course, that, that, that you know, policies like affirmative action, anti-discrimination policies are necessary. But while I agree with all of that, I've been called the class reductionist. You know, on Twitter, right, where, where nuanced assessments go to, to die. So what I'm curious about is, I mean, so for example, the charge of class reductionism was writ large during 2015, 2016, you know, the start of Sanders, immediately after Sanders had announced his plans to run for, for the Democratic nomination. Class reductionism is the thing, right, that's, that's ubiquitous. And he was, of course, characterized as a class reductionist. And the thing that seemed odd to me about that, and it seems odd to me with respect to the shotgun blast that is often enough the charge of class reductionism, it's often directed at people who insist that racism is real, sexism is real, homophobia is real, and 
remedies for those things are necessary. They're not making a case against rolling back anti-discrimination policies or laws, but they also, those people who are often charged as class reductionists, again, acknowledge the realness of those kinds of discriminatory actions, the, the realness of, of um, targeted discrimination. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for the panel. We we discussed social democracy in the past and in the present. We solved racism and, and uh, the labor movement. So now we're onward to build a better future. Engagement with issues like these forms the basis of the classroom experience at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.